0: Would you, um, would you bow with me? We're going we're gonna to go to a time in God's Word. And what I'd like to do, this is uh, in the month of um, February, our practice that we're seeking to practice at home when we're not here and, and in different ways while we're here is meditation. That doesn't mean like Eastern religions, empty yourself. That means fill yourself with God's Word. And so I'm going to have you close your eyes. I'm going to give you two simple psalms to pray. Um, Meditation is actually muttering, and for them that meant also even mumbling out loud. So you are free at this moment. Does not make us wildly charismatic? That if if I say it and you want to whisper it, you want to mutter it, you can also say it uh, quietly in your heart and not say it out loud. But if, if you would just close your eyes... And mutter this prayer to God. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things in your law. And now before the next psalm, if you would just pray for me, that the Lord would move me out of the way, that he would be front and center. And now pray for yourself. We've prayed open our eyes, but perhaps if there's something that you know is, is an obstruction to your being receptive or it's just on you, give it to him now. If you're anxious, if you're hurting, give that to him and then ask him to help you be attentive to his word this morning. And now lastly, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 is a prayer that I often pray so that God would help me be honest before him and that he would continue to have my heart and my life. Um, Mumble this, meditate upon this. Let this be your prayer to him. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in your everlasting way. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his reputation alone. Amen. Quick uh, headset adjustment here. When you have a large water bucket head like mine, it, it, busts the, <laughs> it busts the headset a lot. All right, well, we're in a, a series called uh, On the Way with the Resolute One. Uh, from If you want to turn to Luke uh, 11, that's where we're going to be today. Luke 11, but I'll uh, show you the, the next slide here is, We're calling this On the Way with the Resolute One because in Luke 9.51, through a humongous chunk now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, which is after his death and resurrection, he'll ascend to heaven, but he knew that was coming, he resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. What awaited him in Jerusalem? What we, what we remembered and rehearsed today. Betrayal, suffering, mocking, a cross, death and burial and resurrection, and then ascension. And so he resolutely set him, his face toward jerusalem where he knew that that was the father's will he knew that that was the only way for us to be put in right relationship with god not of our own making but of his place taking and so also knowing that his time was growing short in this section he turns more and more of his attention to his disciples now sometimes they're listening in like today is they're, they're around but we don't see them mentioned next week We'll see that he turns his attention to them in the midst of the crowds and the critics. But he knows that his time is growing short, and so he said, I know I'm going to pass the baton to these men. They're going to be the ones through whom I will build my church and advance my kingdom. And so I got l- precious time. And so he wants to invest in them instruction and coaching, correction. He wants to expose where they have attitudes of rivalry and superiority. He wants them to learn the heart of of servant leadership. And so all of those things, uh, he's going to be teaching them along the way. And while he's on the way, some of their instruction will be watching and listening to Jesus as he confronts those who have various responses to him. And we're going to see that today. Uh, Here's one observation. I hope you hear this from me whenever I'm teaching or preaching I'm almost always saying I'm not really telling, telling you anything brilliant like this is plain on the page. And here's what I want you to see that's plain on the page. Earlier in Luke, when he would do something miraculous, we're gonna, there's going to be a miracle today. Earlier in Luke's gospel and the other gospels, a lot of, lot of ink spilt on, here's what happened in terms of this person and Jesus, you know, casting out a demon or healing uh, a person of blindness, or they couldn't walk, etc., now they can. There's a lot of ink spilled on that, and a little tiny bit of explanation. Well, now in this section, particularly, and today we're going to see, there's one verse about the miracle, and then the rest of it is explaining the miracle, explaining to critics, to the amazed crowds, to those who are like, "Ah, I'm skeptical, I need more. And so I just want to make that plain observation. Why do I do that? Because the point isn't the miracle. In fact, never in the Gospels are the miracles the point. There's six different words used for signs or wonders or miracles in the Gospels. But in every single one of them, they are simply to authenticate the message and the messenger, and they're to point to something beyond that. Therefore, we get frustrated with Jesus. Why didn't he heal everybody? Everybody, you know, in Mark 1, and we saw it in Luke as well, like they couldn't find him. He's off praying, having a quiet time. Like, come on, there's ministry to be had. We've, we've sent out, you know, a social media blast. We're, this, is, this thing's going gonna to ride this wave, Jesus. And he said, no, that's not why I've come. I've come to preach. So we're going to go to other villages and get the message out that the kingdom of God is at hand and that really... That means it's embodied by the one who's the king who has arrived, okay? So that's a little backdrop to the section today. It's gonna to be 11, 14 through 36. What, I, um, what I'm gonna do though is walk us through bit by bit. We're not gonna uh, read it right off the bat, but I do want you to see the miracle. And uh, first, if you can put that, the first slide up there, you're gonna see there are mixed responses today To Jesus' undeniable power, another non-brilliant buddy observation is that nobody in this passage, as it's recorded, denies that a miracle took place. Nobody. Nobody said, nah, that's some tricks, that's some smoke and mirrors, this is, you know, there's there's a cord somewhere holding him up, that's how he can fly. No, it's undeniable So the question is, what do we do with what we cannot ignore happened? An undeniable power. And so we're going to see it. Let's look at the first verse. And he, that's Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute, unable to speak. And the demon had gone out, and sorry, when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed." This is not the only time you see amazement. It's not the only time when they're floored. And the question that whether they articulated or not, and the question that should be rising within us is here's a man who couldn't speak, and it's actually because there was a demon within him that caused him to be mute. He could not speak. The people knew this man. They knew that he couldn't speak. He couldn't do it. And then all of a sudden he spoke, and they were floored. They were amazed, and here's the question that rose in their minds, and here's the question that should rise in ours. Who then is this? Who then is this that can take a mute man, cast a demon out of him that was causing his muteness, and now the man speaks? Who then is this? It's other times in the gospel. I don't know if it's in Luke or Mark, but when, he, when Jesus gets up, the, you know, they're they're freaking out because the, the Sea of Galilee's is going nutso, and Jesus is asleep in the boat. And they're like, don't you even care we're perishing? And he gets up and he says, be still or be calm. And immediately, it's like perfect wakeboarding weather. I mean, you know, the, it's glassy. And they say, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? That is the question about Jesus Christ. Who then is this? Because we can't deny Something miraculous has happened. But the miraculous is not the point. The miraculous is, yes, ask and seek to answer that question. Who then is Jesus? Well, in the, in the um, crowd there, everyone was amazed. Everyone's jaw dropped. But I want us to see now that they're, they're amongst the crowd as well, not just amazed but they're hostile critics and they're um, sign-hungry skeptics. Look at the next slide, the next verse. But some, so everybody's amazed, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul. Some of yours might say Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others to test him were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Again, notice they do not debate Jesus's power. What they're debating is the source of his power. They're debating where does this authority come from? Where's the fuel for this that has happened? Who then is this? And that brings us really to what this passage is about. It's answering the question, who then is this? And and we're going to be brought to we need to be confronted that it's a decision, it's the crucial decision that you and I must answer. Who then is he who makes the mute man speak, who makes the, wa- the winds and the waves calm down, who makes the lame to walk and the blind to see? Or as he said in Luke 4, when he read in the synagogue, he said, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives, those who are held hostage, Those who are held captive, I've come to proclaim liberty to them. And then he had the audacity in that moment to say, this is fulfilled in your hearing. That's why they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And then Jesus, we're not told much about it. Somehow he just doesn't let it happen. Who then is this? These are decisions about Jesus. As we go through, I want you to notice a couple things. I want you to notice that, again, They're the maze crowds, the hostile critics, the sign-hungry skeptics. They're all trying to go, how do I fit this in my grid of who he is and what has happened, what I can't explain, who do I believe him to be? And they're coming to points of decision. But I want you to notice, again, simple observation. There are those in their decision about him, though they can't deny what he's done. They're predisposed to reject him. Their eyes see what they want to see, and their ears hear what they want to hear. And in their hearts, they're predisposed to reject him. And then what Jesus will confront is there are also those who want to postpone their decision. And there are various reasons. We're not told all their reasons, but there's some say, well, let me see a little more evidence. Um, There's some that may be like, well, I mean, let's, you know, let's not go be rash and, you know, crazy here. Let's kind of take, take our time, and I want to figure this out. And so you have predisposed to reject, but you also have prone to postpone the decision of who is Jesus really. So next slide. Jesus now is going to first turn his attention to those who have that predisposition to reject him, to his hostile critics who charge that he's done this by Beelzebul, which is Lord of the flies. Beelzebub means Lord of the flies, but they're referring to Satan. Look at the next verse. It says, but he knew. He knew their thoughts. Again, that's also miraculous. So evidently, it wasn't real audible yet, this charge, but Jesus knew what was going on in the murmurings. That also ought to go, whoa, how did he know that? But he knew their thoughts, and he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. What he's saying here is your logic is off. What in the world, why in the world would Satan, who is about bringing evil and destruction and holding captive people like this where they can't speak and other ways of tormenting them, authoring destruction, not life. Why in the world would he all of a sudden, you know, have somebody else have power to undo that, to reverse curses, reverse demonic possession? Why? He's like, your logic makes no sense. In fact, furthermore, then he traps them. He says, "And if I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out?" So in other words, there were other people who did exorcisms. And he says, "And so they'll be your judges." And there were others who did exorcisms during this time. Also included in this, and some scholars would say what Jesus is really referring to without getting very explicit is, their, uh, His disciples are Jews, they are part of their sons, and they have been casting out demons. And will cast out demons, again, not because they're going to start a a sideshow with it, but to authenticate them as having the authority from God, an authenticated message through authenticated messengers by what he's empowered them to do. And so they will sit in judgment of you. Or if it's just your own sons, not even the disciples, they're saying, you kind of put your sons in a sketchy, you know, shaky ground. You basically are lumping me with them. So what do you say? Do they do it by God, but I don't? So again, Jesus, um, you should grow to just admire him just for that. (laughs) Like his ability to dodge what is uh, totally, you know, false claims, schemes, and we're going to see it at the end of 11. Um, Because he directly confronts the the Pharisees, we'll see it next week, and gives them these woes. It says, this heated them up all the more, and they were like, we got to do away. We got to catch him. We got to trap him. We got to figure out how to do away with him. They're they're still on that path. He says, so your logic is off. So here's what you really are confronted with. Verse 20. But, so couldn't be by Beelzebub, but that's one option. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God then the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's so powerful, he can just use his finger and make it happen. This is probably an allusion uh, to Exodus, when God did many powerful things, demonstrating himself as superior to the Egyptians, you know, their uh, false gods and pagan worship, and all the plagues and all that is kind of going, yep, you guys can do some stuff, but here's real power. He says, if I can do this by the finger of God, if I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What is he saying? There are only two options. You don't get to have multiple options, and one of your options is illogical. also um, puts your own sons on shaky ground. So what you're really confronted with is, what do you do and what are you going to decide about who I am if I don't cast out this demon by Satan's power, but by the finger of God? He's saying... It's a drawing a line in the sand. You're either with me or against me. He says, if I didn't do this by the power of Satan, then it's by the finger of God. And that has ramifications for those who follow me and those who reject me. Uh, 1 John 3, 8. Yeah, that's it. It says this, the Son of God appeared for this purpose. Now he appeared for other perpi, if I can make that plural. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke nineteen ten. But this is one of, if you will, the portfolio of why he came. And notice what John says: the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Now I've read that, and I've known that you know Jesus cast out demons. But I'm telling you, this hit me fresh a few weeks ago. Um, our elders are going, and our staff we're going through a book called Rest and War. Um, by Ben Stewart. It's all about what we're trying to be about practices and having rhythms um, to connect with God so he gets more of us and we get him, and not get things. But also just talking about the reality of, hey, to, to, you want to you wanna begin to connect with God? The target's going to be on your back. And so you've got to be ready and prepared and be sober and alert and all those kinds of things. But, but he pointed out, Ben Stewart pointed out this verse. I'm like, wow, it's very bold. I made it bold on your slide here, but this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. I had never associated, you can think I'm dumb, but Luke 4, when he, when he basically quotes Isaiah and saying, I'm here, you know, I'm going to free the captives. For whatever reason, I never, met, I never connected that with, well, they're captive because of the God of this world. Now, I know 2 Corinthians 4, and he blinds our eyes. That's part of why. We have a predisposition to reject Him. In fact, we can't make our hearts warm to Him. The Spirit has to help us see and hear and understand who then is this. But think about that. He showed up to destroy. You can connect it all the way back to Genesis 3. Because of the fall, sin entered the world and death through sin. And therefore, life is hard. Even if you're living your life you know, clean and innocent and all that it's just hard and sin can you know easily entangle us and he came to destroy that and this is an evidence of it that he cast out this demon from the mute man so jesus says the kingdom of god's come upon you and the kingdom of god is now it's a it's a landed invasion i'm gonna take back ground that satan was taking i'm here to destroy the works of the devil. Next he says, Listen, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, is the next verse, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes the plunder. He gives him a picture. The strong man is Satan. The one who is stronger is Jesus. And the one who is stronger is here. Let this miracle that amazed you, and you couldn't put it in a category, let it point you to the question, who then is this? And let that be at least in the ballpark of your thinking to go, if it's not by Satan and it's by the finger of God, then what's the connection of this one who did it? Ben Stewart, next quote here. He said, have you ever described Jesus in this way, as a strong guy who beats up another guy and steals his things? Yeah, well, that's how Jesus described himself. And, and, and you know, that's refreshing because it's true. It's what Jesus just told the. Hey, let me give you a picture. This strong guy, he's armed, he's got everything. And, and a stronger one came and plundered his treasure. And that treasure is people. People deceived and blinded by him. People held captive by him. I've come to give liber- proclaim and bring liberty to the captives. Next slide. He says, and we might say, but isn't he the Prince of Peace? Because think about it. Don't we think of Jesus either? Those of you who are like my age and you have the the very ugly framed, very brown picture of milk toast Jesus in the Sunday school hallway. Like you can't get that out of your head. Now that I said it, especially. But we, we see him as a nice guy who wears flowing robes. Like, yeah, I guess we'll deal with that. But, you know, we, we see him as this very muted, I hope that people will accept me and my message. Jesus came to kick some, you know, rear end and take names, if I can say that in the Greek. He, he, but we ask, isn't he the prince of peace? That's a legitimate question. He says, you bet he is. And he's bringing peace through superior fire, firepower. The stronger one is here. That's what Jesus is letting them know. The stronger one is here. Now, the next verse, then he lays down the challenge. He's basically saying, are you with me or against me? He says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. Who is he gathering? Those that he wants to bring back into, into relationship with God. He wants to free them, from the God of this age and blindness uh, spiritually and deception and he wants them to come to the knowledge of the truth and he is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. He says, you're either with me or against me. I want to say this and I'm going to say it multiple times. Hear this. Jesus is saying, there is no neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. No Switzerland's. There is no neutral ground. You're either with me or you're against me. So now he's going to actually tell a strange story, a parable, if you will. And then he's going to talk to a lady who is, in my sense, is she's so uncomfortable with, like she's so in awe, but she's so uncomfortable with what Jesus said. And like, ooh, I think she gets it. He's saying there's no neutral ground. And she kind of just shouts something out. I'll call her Betty Beatitude because she she blesses Jesus' mom. But the parable, here it is, that says there's no neutral ground. It says, When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. The house is a person. The demon had been cast out. But it's like, well, I can't find any place to dwell, so maybe I'll go back to the house. When he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. So there was a time when the demon was cast out. Now in a place, well, who's going to become the dweller? And it's cleaned, you know, it's ready like y'all have done, like get the houses on, I mean, the picture's online, it looks great. And the demon says, well, maybe I'll go back. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now, if you spend too much time on this, it's a parable, you spend too much time, and you, and you too deeply dive in this, you'll you'll become um, out there. Don't go. Well, there's seven spirit. Like, just Jesus is telling a parable. Going, there's no neutral ground. And when a demon is cast out, now even that man who was mute, he didn't say, "Hey, Jesus," I, you know, it doesn't tell us what he said before, or he couldn't say anything, signed before, I don't know, but now the demon is cast out. But there's not neutral ground. Who will you say that he is? And he says, because if it's clean, but there's no response, and you keep prolonging it, I'm going to just remain neutral. He's like, that neutral clean house is going to be filled, and it's going to be worse than the first. Here's what he's saying. Neutrality is dangerous. For years, doing youth ministry, young life, doing young adult ministry, can't tell you how many times, uh, I sat with folks uh, having coffee, and, and they're talking about, man, you know, I've just started hanging out with you guys, and you're the, I had one guy say, you're the breakfast-eating people. Breakfast, yeah, whatever. You eat a lot together, you Christians, and he's warming up to it, and he's warming up to it, and he's warming up to it. He's like, but, you know, I just don't know if I'm ready. I, I just There's some things I just really want to think. Now, Jesus invites us to wrestle, so don't hear that. But it is dangerous to think, I'll just keep this thing on hold and stay neutral. It's also a deception to think, well, if I really want to be intellectually honest, then I need to gather all the facts. Let me tell you, this passage shows you there's no lack of evidence. So Jesus says there's no neutrality because neutrality is dangerous. It actually becomes hospitality to evil. The house is clean, but now... There wasn't a response. And it's like you, uh, you've listed yourself as a host home. And evil will move in worse than before. Well, like I said, I'm going to call her Nervous Nellie or Beatitude Betty. Um, this is really quick. Um, she's in a neutral ground, too, because she reminds me of folks that um, have been around but aren't believers, but they want just enough of God to kind of you know, I'm not in the danger zone, uh, and often those type folks, well-intentioned, but also feeling fish out of water, because I'm a pastor, they'll just say kind of weird things. Uh, Jim shared one, I won't share it, because we're online, but he shared one about being a pastor, and a neighbor didn't know it, and then found out he's a pastor. Now, i probably said too much, um, but the kind of the, 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 like, where in the world did that thought come from? I, I have had People um, introduce me as their pastor, and they've never darkened the door of this church, nor whatever. And it's like, you know, we're just talking at a football game, talking about football, and so. And he—he's my pastor. Like, whoa, that's kind of what I envision here. This lady. She said, while Jesus was saying these things, they're a little bit uncomfortable, maybe. One of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said, "Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nursed." It's nice. It's warm. It's a beatitude. But Jesus said, but he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So beware of neutrality. It's dangerous. You could become a host to evil like the parable. But also neutr- neutrality is a false comfort. She's deflecting those things that she's, she's going, there's something I need to address. There's something that's confronting me here, but I don't feel, com- I'm, uh, and I'm, let me say some nice things. Let me have what little bit of connection I can with you, but let me stay at a distance. He says, what's blessed is those who hear the word of God and observe it, a receptivity and response. And so Jesus says neutrality is not an option. Now he turns to the sign hungry skeptics, 29 through 32. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given it, but the sign of Jonah, for just as Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh, now back to the Jonah story, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it. Why? Because the Ninevites repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Someone stronger than Satan is here. Someone greater than Solomon is here in all his wisdom, which is why this queen of the south said, I need to get near that. I, I, there's something going on there. That's a great thing. That's seeking. And she went to hear God's wisdom through Solomon. And, and the Ninevites repented. We don't know much. Jonah may have said more, but in the scriptures, it's about a sentence long from a really disgruntled prophet who didn't want to be there and was probably bleached from being uh, in a whale shark Or some type of large fish It wasn't a whale Some type of fish He was vomited up and got said Oh, you want to run? No, you're going to go He shows up And the sign of Jonah here is not uh, Like resurrection That, you know, that could be an image But it's more, honestly It's more the embodied message And received message That, hey, 40 days, you better repent 40 days, you're going to be overthrown And they're like, We repent And they responded to God. All he's saying is what God is looking for, you don't need more signs. I've given you enough. The sign that you need is those signs point to, I am authoritative. I am the king of this kingdom that's arrived. How will you respond to my word? Because that's the point. How will you respond to who I am and what my message is? He says, I am greater than Solomon who was responded to by this um, Gentile, also need to point that out, in Luke. He's about the outsider being given the opportunity to be part of God's kingdom. His two examples here are Gentiles. In fact, Gen- the Queen of the South, they probably, you know, revered or whatever, royalty somewhere else, but the Ninevites, they despise just like Jonah. And it's two outsider Gentiles that respond, and boy, you want to tick the Jewish crowd off, Jesus is doing so. He's saying you cannot remain neutral, you cannot remain hesitant, you have to do something. The question is, who then am I? And if I do this by the finger of God, then there are ramifications. He who is with me is, is, is not with me, is against me. Where are you? Uh, it's not so much my, my lineage, my mom, I love my mom, but it's about hearing God's word and obeying. And Gentiles heard God's word and responded and repentance, and trust, what are you going to do? And the question would be like, well, but we need another sign. No, the problem is not. And there's the next slide, and this is where we're coming to a, an ending. Jesus actually calls, he's um, using this figure, which we've seen elsewhere, and he probably used multiple times about a light and lamp, and you don't hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Jesus is that light. He says, I've come into the world. I've come into this darkness, the kingdom of darkness, so that I might illumine God's truth and be the embodiment of light and truth. He says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it's bad, your eye, your body also is full of darkness. And here's the caution. Then watch out or see to it that the light in you is not darkness. The caution is, take pains, see to it that you ensure that you're receptive to Jesus, his word, and his rule. In the last verse, if therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. So Jesus, going back to that couple slides earlier, they don't need more signs. They didn't, don't need more evidence. What they need is a receptive heart. What they need, is the problem is your eyes. Are you trying to see me through your predisposed grid to reject me? So you explain me away, malign me, or out and out assign me to Satan? That's one. Or the postponers, you want going, well, I can kind of figure this out, and, you know, you owe me time, and if you're a God of kindness and, like, he says, no, the problem is our eyes. The problem is we want to see him through our grid, through our preferences, through our what would make my life work, and he says, you don't get that choice. Now, that's a hard message, but let me tell you, part of that message is freeing us from the captivity and deception of the God of this age. When we kind of half-heartedly listen to him, when we kind of dabble with him, we're, we're thinking that we can just be sort of neutral about him. In fact, we would say, I'm not neutral. I mean, I say Jesus is, you know, it's, what about his word? How much sway does it have? What about his rule? Do you per- press up against it? We all do. But are you responsive to him or are you sealed off from him and making life fit on your own terms? And you get real ticked when he doesn't really cooperate with your agenda. He's saying there is no neutrality. The problem is not more evidence. If you're thinking, you know what, I just need to see God do something. He's done plenty, and he's put it right here so we can see it. And he he may do things in your life, but the the issue isn't evidence. It's your eyes and mine. So last Ben Stewart quote, I think, says, Jesus stepped out to destroy the works of the devil, not by perpetrating an act of violence, but by taking violence upon himself. Before we think, well, Jesus is just so harsh, and he's so uncaring— unloving, because he's just hitting us. I believe when he told, told that woman that, I don't think he embarrassed her. I think he was very gentle and tender in how he said, appreciate it, love my mom too, but listen to my father and his word, and he sent me for you. But notice what kind of God would allow us to go through suffering, hardship, what kind of God, you know, fill in the blank of your hesitancy and your, your insistence on why you can be neutral or slightly resistant and not neutral. Well, the kind of God that would step into humanity, and the kind of God who would step into, as we rehearsed here, and take my place and yours on the cross. A few, few other scriptures. Hebrews 2. Notice the connection, not just that Jesus was incarnate, but notice that he came to destroy the works of the devil and how he did so by taking violence upon himself. Dying in our place. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, he became human, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Then Colossians two thirteen to fifteen. This is similar to Ephesians, you were dead, but he made you alive. But I want you to notice what Jesus did on the cross to destroy the works of the devil and therefore bring liberty to us. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Next slide. When he had disarmed, what did the story talk about? The strong man who armed himself up. When Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's talking about the demonic realm, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, which is referring to Jesus. He took violence upon himself on the cross so that we might have forgiveness and life. And not just life that's durable forever, but life that has an eternal quality and is life-giving and is liberty not for ourselves, but to serve others alongside the one who died in our place. And so, therefore, ours can be one of gratitude in response. Colossians 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. We don't qualify ourselves. You and I, if, we, if you're not in a relationship with the Lord Jesus personally, you can't clean yourself up enough. Forgive the, the archaic expression here. You can't walk enough old ladies across the street enough. You can't make things right in your business enough. You can't do, I can't do anything. He qualifies us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Why? For he, this is Jesus, rescued us, the father really, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness, that's Satan's realm, and he transferred you and me to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, we are part of his triumph. The last one, well, I want you to have this in your mind. Jesus didn't come to be nice and say some nice things. He came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to make war, and he, and he came to win that war. And so we, you've heard this before, we don't fight for a victory. Um, we fight from victory. We live from a victory. And 2 Corinthians gives a picture Back in the day, you'd go conquer another, you know, rival land. They had some of your people held hostage. And what would happen is you conquered, and they'd have a, a, a triumph parade, basically. And you'd come back, and as you come back, the conquering king and his warriors there, and then probably dragging, shackled behind, would be the vanquished king um, to humiliate shame and say, never again will you have to fear this piddly little foe. And then behind that vanquished king would be all those who had been held hostage, who had now been freed, and they're wearing white linen, and they're carrying these containers, these censers to burn incense, so that as you walk through, not only was it an impressive parade and seeing the victory, and now we live in that victory, the the people would, would shout and celebrate, but also we smell victory. But Jesus, uh, Paul actually, he says the same thing that Jesus does. There's no neutral ground. Paul would say that the aroma, that aroma of victory, which is what Jesus' death on the cross is a victory, disarming Satan, that's either an aroma from death to death or life to life. It's not a, well, you're kind of in the aroma-free zone. There is no neutral. Who then is this? He's the one who came to destroy the works of the devil to plunder his treasure. And he has his eyes set on each of us to respond that he has come to free you. He has come to die in your place so that there could be no longer a death that would hold us down because he rose from the grave. That is our hope that we rehearsed again and again. He's our living hope. And we're like those who can be in the back of the parade processing with him to be an aroma to all those who need that aroma. Throw up the slide with the football player. Here's what I want the image in your head. I don't know where you are. I don't know if you're like, boy, I walked in here and I, was, I wouldn't have said this, but I was very resistant to God. God's really, I'm, I'm irritated with him. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're listening. You may say, buddy, even what you talked about has hardened me more. I, I pray that you might hear him and respond to him, and and that this being a warning, there is no neutral. It's not an option, and that you might, he might bring into your heart a heart of repentance, a heart of saying, "I give up." One of my favorite prayers I ever heard was an old young life kid who we tried to reach and tried to reach and tried to reach, and we never did. And we thought it's never going to get anywhere. He came back on a ski trip as a college kid. We were pretty much his only lifeline to God, but he wasn't a believer. And the very last night, I had the work crew. I was his boss. We would wash the dishes and stuff. And I said, hey, when we're done praying, the awkward pause, I'll close us. And there was the awkward pause, and I was just about to pray. And I heard him say, you got me. I'm tired of running. And he came to that place of going, I can't try to fake it anymore to be neutral. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. We were all weeping. And that's the invitation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, don't think that you can just keep running don't think that neutral is okay and for all of us who have been redeemed by him because we've trusted Jesus our savior we're in the parade and we are to be an aroma to those who need an aroma who need to see the transforming power of Jesus in our lives it may not be demon cast out but maybe it's an attitude of forgiveness that is beginning to work its way into our lives maybe it's a generosity Maybe it's a neighborliness. Whatever it is, you and I are part of a victory, and it's not us. He's freed us as captives, but he's freed us to be part of the fight and part of taking ground as part of his kingdom. I just want you to see this as neutral is not an option. This is D Ford. I think this is uh, four years ago. AFC Championship, the Chiefs are up 28-24. It's like less than a minute left. Of course, Brady's driving the Patriots down. It's going to be the same old story. And then Brady throws an interception, and the crowd erupts. And they think, this is it, we're going to the Super Bowl. Well, there was a flag on the play. And the flag was, and you can see it, D Ford is lined up in the neutral zone. The neutral zone in football, the only guy who can be there is the guy hiking the ball, that's it, and there's a, there's a neutral zone. What Jesus is telling us is, just like this picture, and I hate it for this guy, <laughs> okay? But if you line up in the, you think I can line up in the neutral zone, I can be neutral. No, it's an offense, it's a penalty. And what happened then was that interception got taken away, Brady got the ball, and the Chiefs didn't go to the Super Bowl. Again, God would invite you and me to say, quit dabbling, quit thinking neutrality is okay. It's not. It makes you vulnerable to the schemes and further deception of the devil. Uh, It makes you see life and hearing God's word through your own grid. And he says the problem isn't evidence. The problem is how we see him. Please, he's saying, see that neutral is not an option. What will you do with me, and who then am I? He says, I am the one who's the author and giver and redeemer of life. Would you bow your heads in prayer? Lord, we give thanks to you. Give thanks to you that you have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, that that's not of our own making, but it's of your doing, your finished work. But that finished work only matters because of who you really are. and you have you have been the one who has gone into the darkness and you have rescued us and you've transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved son the kingdom of light i pray that we might walk more honestly before you right now in this moment and as we leave filled with gratitude if we know you it's only because of your grace and filled with a leaning forward to listen if if a person doesn't know you yet and I pray that even this day you might transfer them as they simply respond to you not with here's my resume and here's what I got positive and negative but simply just throwing the weight of their life on you knowing that they can't clean up but that you've done all that is necessary to pay the penalty for our offense to pay the penalty for our sin so we might be made in right relationship with you I pray that they would come to know you as Savior today for this afternoon, I pray for no hamstring pulls and no injuries and fun at celebration. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.